0: You know, this is the time of year um, where, as, as several people already mentioned today, it, it's natural to reflect on the past year and to think about the coming year. It's, it's natural to evaluate the year behind us and to, to think about the year ahead of us. But there's some danger in that, right? There's some danger in that reflection because it comes right after a season that's a very long season from Thanksgiving to now, that can often be an isolated, lonely season or a season that is filled with disappointment and disenchantment. And, and sometimes that season is often filled with loneliness and disconnection, where you can feel very disconnected from God's people and disconnected from God as well because things are busy and you're off schedule. And so there's also a danger, though, that we can see our need for change. And then just come up with a to-do list, right? Anybody here prone to do that? Come up with a to-do list to see, like, here's all the things I need to change this year. Here's all the things I need to do in response. And there's a danger to that because we can try to change in our own efforts. We can try to motivate ourselves. We can try to do everything on our own strength. And there's a danger to that as well. At the same time, there's another danger we can have this time of year is to ignore the opportunity to thoughtfully consider where we've been and where we are now and what lies ahead. And, and sometimes what we can do is we can fall into complacency. And I'll talk a little bit about that today, really, is that we have a danger of falling into complacency, falling asleep as well. And I don't mean just falling asleep right now in this afternoon because, you know, you're off kilter with your schedule. But uh, falling asleep in the Christian walk, we can ignore this opportunity to respond to God as well. Let me share with you a story about a young little boy, a 12-year-old boy named Samak. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. He, had, he he ran through the jungles of Taman Nagara. His feet began to swell, his bones and muscles began to ache. The night had become cool and there was a breeze blowing softly through the treetops. He'd been trading for money in a remote village and was now returning home to his own village. It had been a long day. He was very weary from his journey, so he decided to stop and rest. Although it was unwise to stop for very long in the jungle at night, he decided he'd climb a tree so that he'd be safe from any would-be predators. Samak considered himself lucky when the first tree he climbed had a large vacant nest in it, and he climbed into the nest and leaned his back against the tree. Even though the dangers of sleeping in the jungle alone at night made it unwise, Samak decided to sleep rather than having to run for another hour before he arrived at his own village. After all, he was tired and he had to run hard through the jungle at night because even though he learned to do so well, he still occasionally tripped over the occasional root and stubbed his toe. So in the middle of the night, he began shivering from the cold breeze that blew across him. Soon after that, he thought he felt a subtle warmness around him. But it was warm and very comfortable, so he slept on. In a state somewhere between sleep and awake, he felt as though he was being warmly embraced. Although this should have been alarming to him, he continued to sleep because after all, it was warm. Next, he stirred when he faintly felt something slip under his back as he leaned against the tree and he reached up his hands to return the hug. As he did so, his hands met the firm coil of the 25-foot, hungry, female-reticulated python that had encircled him fully intending for Samok to never awake outside of the snake's stomach. As soon as Samok felt this, he jolted awake to find he couldn't move except for his hands. He was terrified when he realized the predicament he was in. He began to struggle. Whereas the snake had been careful not to wake him before, the python was much more aggressive now that he was awake. The snake began to unhinge his jaws and put his mouth over his head while tightening its coils. Although Samok was almost completely unable to breathe, the last minute he remembered the bush knife he had in his right hand. He grasped it firmly, started to chop of the snake around him as he chopped The snake spasm, finally the snake's movement stopped. Smock free of the now dead python's grasp threw the body from him. After catching his breath, he climbed down from the tree and even though it was the dead of night now and more predators were on the ground and he was even more tired, he began to run towards the village. He was more tired than before, but now he truly realized the dangers of sleeping in the jungle and he wanted no part of it. You know, I think that's a good illustration sometimes for as Christians, we get tired. We get tired. You know, the the world that we live in around us is is difficult. Sometimes we get tired from the race that we're running. Sometimes we get weary, and sometimes we grow a little complacent, and we grow a little comfortable, and sometimes too comfortable. And we face the constant danger of becoming complacent. You know, we're we're surrounded by, by forces from without, by the world around us, by the devil. We're also surrounded by our own internal desires and there's a very real danger that we surround ourselves if we're complacent with these comfortable coils. And for all of us, though, there's a challenge. There's a challenge to say, okay, let's not become complacent as a people. Let's not become complacent as Christians. Not, let's not become complacent as a church. At the same time, the other challenge is, let's not just take up our own self-effort and say, I'm not going to do, do this anymore. I'm going to become better. I'm going I'm to try harder. I'm going to work better. And then we can become self-sufficient, too. You know, church, I think we need a vision that's going to sustain us for the long run. We need a, a motivation that's, that's better than just being a better person. We, we need something that's stronger than just, hey, I, I, I need to be better. I need to do better this year. I need to try harder. We need a hope and a strength outside of ourselves if we're to run with endurance, as the Apostle Paul says, the great race that is set before us. And, and the Apostle Paul, he kind of clues us in. He says, looking to Jesus. But what does that mean? What, is it, what does it mean to look to Jesus? And so today, we're going to be looking at a, a few passages. I want to look at the life of the disciples just right before Jesus 's crucifixion, and then we're look at the life of disciples after his resurrection. and I think that God would have us learn something here about how do we respond when we become sleepy in the Christian walk? How do we respond when maybe we look back and we see that we've failed or we 've fallen away? You know the disciples were handpicked by Jesus to follow him. they were handpicked by, by him to represent him after he ascended but you know what the disciples were very normal people and so i think we're going to be able to relate to the disciples and the very real struggles that they had, because really disciples struggles are the same struggles that we experience today so let's pray and then as we do we'll, we'll jump into scripture father thank you thank you for these times these occasions these rhythms that you give us to be able to to look back to see where we've come from Lord and to to look ahead to see where we're going God I pray that this morning there would be no condemnation for those who are in you but God I pray for the gift of conviction but God I pray that that gift of conviction would be coupled with a hope in you and not in ourselves a trusting and resting in you and not in our own ability And God, I pray that you would enable us to to see you and we be transformed as we behold your mercy. God, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the very first thing that I want us to look at is the fact that it's very relatable for us is that disciples will and can, or can and will fall away. Disciples can and will fall away. It's the first truth that we're going to see. And let's look at Matthew 26 and God's holy inspired word. This is just two days earlier before the, the night that Jesus was betrayed. Jesus told them, he says in Matthew 26, 1, he says, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that two, after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And you might think, well, those last two days, the disciples must have really been on their guard, right? You know, if, if you knew and you were a disciple of Jesus, if you, were, if you knew that in just two days he would be crucified, he wouldn't be with you anymore, you would think that, hey, I'd be on my guard, right? Well, if you thought that, you, you'd probably be wrong too. Because the disciples, they still were a little clueless. Jesus was warning them so they wouldn't be taken by surprise because he was merciful to them. He didn't want them to be surprised by the fact that he was going to be crucified, and then two days later, later Jesus sat down for his last supper with his disciples. And at the end of the last supper, Matthew tells us again what happens. And look in Matthew 26 and verses 29 to 46. We have this for you on your overhead as if you're visiting with us. Jesus tells him again, not only say, hey, in two days I'm going to be crucified. Now he says, by the way, this is the last time. Let's look in God's word. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. What's he saying to them? He's saying, this is the last time I'm going to drink this juice with you because I'm about to die. And then look and continue on in verse 30. It says, when they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, and listen to what he says. It's it's pretty explicit. There's some good warning here. Jesus said to them in verse 31, he says, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, let's take a pause for just a moment. We'll continue on with verse 33 in just a second. But imagine you were one of the disciples and you heard this. So you just heard that, hey, Jesus had predicted the fact that he was going going to be crucified. Now Jesus tells you that this is his last supper. And then now Jesus warns you again, and he says, hey, you're all going to fall away. How do you think you would respond to that warning? How would you respond? Well, let's look and see how Peter and the other disciples respond in verse 33. He says, Peter answered him, and think about who's answering. He's answering Jesus. Look down the Bibles again. He says, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will never, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. You know, in the context of letting his disciples know he was going to be crucified, and this was his last supper, he tells them, that they would fall away, and you think they would take the warning seriously, you think they would take pause. After all, who's talking to them? This is Jesus, the very Messiah, the Son of God, right? But they were all a little too confident in themselves, and I can kind of relate to that at times, my walk with Jesus. And they all responded self-confidently. They're probably self-assured, they're probably proud, thinking, you know what, Jesus, we've been with you for three years, we're never going to fall away from you. You ever... You ever been in that place where you think, you know what, I'll, I'll never fall away from Jesus. I'll never deny him. I'll, I'll never fall away. You ever been there? You ever felt self-assured? You ever been proud that you couldn't fail in the same way that you've seen other people fail? You ever had the same thought as Peter and say, you know, if everyone else falls away, if everyone else sins in this way, if everyone else walks away from you and does these scandalous things, I won't ever do that. Well, I think disciples were, were more like us than we want to admit Peter says, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. What was going on? You see, Peter, I think, was trusting in his own ability. He was trusting in his own strength. He thought he was better than the other disciples. That's very clear. He says, though they all fall away, I won't do that. He thought that maybe he was smarter. Maybe he thought he was stronger. Maybe he thought that he was more in love with Jesus. Not sure, but I know we all face that temptation to be arrogant and proud in the belief that we'll never fall away. But here, think about this. Who this is saying is we have Peter. He's, he's arguably perhaps the best friend of Jesus, if, or at least one of the three best friends of Jesus. He had spent three years with Jesus, day in and day out. And he's now declaring vehemently he would never fall away. And I think we're tempted in the same way sometimes. We're tempted to put trust in ourselves and our own ability. We're we're tempted to put trust in our own righteousness to keep ourselves. You know what? That results in a very bad thing. We're going to see that in just a few minutes. Think about, at first, who was Jesus responding to? He had been around Jesus. He would seen Jesus do countless miracles. He had seen Jesus not only heal all the sick and open up blind eyes, he had seen Jesus open up deaf ears. He would seen the lame walk. He, He had seen miracle upon miracle, and he saw Jesus provide bread out of nothing. He, he saw the dead be brought to life through Jesus. He heard all of the things that Jesus had to say and saw that Jesus was the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy. And so why do I say it's arrogant? Because he's, he himself confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And yet he says, but Jesus, I don't really believe what you say is true. Jesus, I know you're telling me I'm going to fall away, but you're wrong. Right? You ever tell Jesus you're wrong? You ever like, well, Jesus, I know that you say this in your word, but but that's not really true. I think we're all prone to that. And that was that was what Peter was doing. He was basically saying, Well, Jesus, you know, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the very Son of God, but I know better than you. I know myself better than you, Jesus. But it wasn't limited to Peter. You can't just harp on Peter. All the other disciples, Matthew wrote, he says. And he said it pretty humbly. He said all the disciples said the same. And he was part of that group. John tells us in his account that they were, they were so, so proud that at the same time, they got into an argument right after this about who was the greatest disciple. Jesus tells them, I'm going to be betrayed, this is my last supper with you, you're all going to fall away, and they all are now jockeying for position, saying, well, I'm better, and Peter's like, if they all fall away, I certainly won't, and somehow that turns into an argument about who's the greatest. You know, I wonder what Peter was, I mean, Jesus was thinking at, at that moment. I mean, at least he must have been thinking, Really? Did I just told you that I'm about to die and be betrayed? I just told you that was my last time I'm eating with you guys, and all you can do is argue about who's the greatest of you? And then Jesus tells them that, you know, you, Peter, you're you're so proud. You think that you aren't going to fall away, but Peter, you need to learn a lesson. You need to learn that you can't trust in your own ability, that you can trust what I have to say. But Peter, you need to learn that you can't trust in your own ability to keep yourself. So Matthew writes about the response of Jesus to Peter and verse 34, look back again, he says, Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, not only will you fall away, Peter, you're gonna deny me. He says, you will deny me three times. And Peter was so self-assured, he says, even if I must die with you, I won't deny you. He doesn't just disagree with Jesus he disagrees a second time he says if I have to die you know so sometimes we can be so self-assured so self-sufficient that we think we'll we'll be faithful to the bitter end we'll never fail we'll never fall away but I want you to see immediately what happens and I'm I'm guessing that as Peter reflected back on what he had to say that he probably regretted his words I'm guessing as Peter looked back on what he and the other disciples say, he probably was remorseful at least. Look at Matthew 26, verse 36. The very next scene shows us really the truth of their own ability to keep themselves from falling away. Look at Matthew 26, 36. It says, "And Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there to pray. And then taking with him Peter... And the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And let's stop there for just a moment. Here is Jesus in his darkest, deepest hour of need. He takes his three best friends aside. He has all the disciples there and says, would you sit and watch and pray? He asks his three disciples, would you watch with me? What he means is, would you watch in praying with me? And then it says that they knew it. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. This is their master, their leader, their Lord and Savior. He's troubled, he's sorrowful. Wouldn't you think? Wouldn't you think that if they were so self-assured of not falling away, they'd at least be able to be attentive when, when he needed them the most? Look down at verse 38. It says, Then he said to him, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And then in verse 39, it says, going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then in verse 40, here's what we find. It says, And he came to his disciples, and he found them sleeping. You know, the, immediately the disciples' protestations of not falling away, they're immediately shown to be vain. As I was reading this verse last week, I was I was actually encouraged by that as I was thinking, you know, that's me so often and in my own strength, my own ability, I think I can do things. I think I'm able to do things. I'm thinking I'm able to follow the Lord faithfully and I'm shocked when I'm not. I'm shocked when I when I fall asleep praying. I'm shocked when I when I don't have the ability to just be awake. And yet I am comforted knowing that Jesus' disciples fell asleep. I know that sounds backwards, and I'll get there in a minute. Why? You know, they couldn't keep themselves from falling asleep, much less from falling away. And maybe this was God's way of helping them see, wait a minute, you said you're not going to fall away? You, you, you're just, you can't even keep yourself from falling asleep. You better watch out. You think you're not going to fall away? You can't even stay awake. And so Jesus he goes back a short time later. He finds his disciples, his best friends as well, all asleep. Now let's keep reading the verse 40 of Matthew 26 to see what happens next. In verse 40, he says to Peter, So, could you not wash with me one hour? You can imagine he's been pouring his heart out. He's been sorrowful. He, is, he said he's sorrowful even to the point of death. He feels like he's going to die. He knows he's going to die. But he's so sad, he already feels that way. Look in verse 41, then he pleads with them a second time. He says, watch and pray that you might not enter temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And then again, a second time, he goes back and prays. And and he says, my father, this cannot pass. Unless I drink it, your will be done. And then verse 43, look again. It says, and again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. Let's just pause for another moment. He didn't even bother waking them up this time. Verse forty-four says, So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to his disciples and he said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See the hours at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. You know, three t- times the disciples did not stay awake. Even if Jesus poured his heart out to me, pleaded with them, and I thought, you know, that's often me. I'm feeble. I am weak. And I'm prone to actually be discouraged and condemned. And we'll, we'll get to in a minute why this isn't condemning. But we're, we're so often like the disciples, we can't even stay awake, much less keep ourselves from falling away. We are faithless. So we heard an encouragement from one of the words that was shared this morning. Our, the good news is coming that our faith is not in our faithlessness. And I don't think this is just about when we pray. I think we can fall asleep spiritually as well. I think we can tend to fall asleep in the Christian walk. We can grow tired in our walk with Jesus. Well, let's skip down to see what happened after Jesus was then betrayed by Judas in the garden. He betrayed him with a kiss, one of his own disciples. And then in verse 56 of Matthew 26, so at least look down your Bibles. It says, as Jesus is telling them, He says, but all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all, read read this for how sad it is. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him not close by, but at a distance. As far as the courtyard of the high priest, going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. You know, as soon as Jesus was betrayed and Jesus willingly gave himself up to the mob, when they came to him and they asked who he was, he revealed who he was, and, and he said, Put your sword away, Peter. And he surrendered himself willingly, he says, You could have come at any time, but all of his disciples left him, all of the disciples fled. This was probably just a couple hours after Jesus had said, you're all going to fall away from me on account of me. They all, they all professed their strength in him, their trust in him, said, no, well, none of us will fall away. Peter says, if I, I have to die. I'm not even going to deny you. And yet what happens? They all fall away. They all flee. And Peter, he's, he's hanging way back at a distance trying to blend in with the guards, probably wanting to save his own skin, so much for his profession of, being willing to die, right? They proved Jesus was right. They couldn't keep themselves from falling away. They couldn't even keep themselves from falling asleep. Now look and see if Peter really kept his word. Let's see, was Peter really able to keep his word? Was Peter really able to keep himself? Was Peter able to to keep himself from denying Jesus in his own strength? Well, let's look down in the Bible in Matthew 26, verse 69. It says, now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard just take another pause for a moment. This courtyard was, was not terribly huge. I'm sure it was large, but it probably wasn't as larger than this room here. So he was able to see Jesus, we know from scripture. He likely would have been able to hear at least a little portion of the trial of the Inquisition that Jesus was undergoing. Let's go back to the Bible here. It says now Peter's sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant came up to him and said, You also work with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I don't know what you mean. And, and when he went out to the entrance, so he, he went a little further away to the entrance of the courtyard. He backed up. He got a little away from them, which is a different part of the, the courtyard. It says, another servant girl saw him. Look down your Bibles. And she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. And then in verse 74, Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, saying, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And he went out, and he wept bitterly. Three times Peter had a chance to, to recant his denial. Three times Peter had a chance to respond, to, to be good enough on his own, to be strong, to be faithful And yet he was so concerned for himself that he escalates things, he invokes a curse on himself and swears that he doesn't know Jesus. Think about that for a moment. He invokes a curse, you know, whatever that curse might have been. May God kill me if I don't, or may I be damned, or whatever he invoked on himself. And Matthew, he's a fellow disciple and friend of Peter. He mercifully leaves out a detail that John gives us i'm not sure why john gave us that detail but matthew leaves out some details and um, i'm sorry not john luke luke put the detail in luke is chronicling it later maybe matthew and and john and mark maybe they felt bad for peter so in luke 22 it gives us the same scenario but gives a little more detail and this detail is is important to see and says in Luke twenty two forty six says and immediately while he was speaking speaking to Peter, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and, and look in verse sixty one of Luke twenty two. Could you imagine this? It says, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. He made eye contact with them. I think that he probably might have overheard him or at least knew what happened. So he turns and he looks at Peter with a piercing gaze. And, and Peter says, remember the saying of the Lord, how he said to him before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. He says, and he went out and wept bitterly. Peter here was a failure. All the disciples were a failure. They all failed. They all fell asleep. They all fell away. Peter was instantly convicted. He turns, he he responds with what I believe was repentant tears. He he weeps bitterly over his sin. But you know what the most remarkable thing in this account is, and in the following account? The most remarkable thing, the most amazing thing, the most surprising thing is not that the disciples fall asleep. I think we can all identify they were human. They they failed. They fell asleep. They couldn't even stay awake an hour. Even when Jesus was pouring out like great drops of blood, he was praying so hard, he was so distressed, they knew their Savior was so distressed, they couldn't stay awake. That's surprising, but there's something more surprising than that. it's, It's shocking that they still fall away, even though they've been warned. And it was absolutely scandalous that Peter denied Jesus three times after he vowed his own life that he wouldn't. And it's scandalous, and it's surprising, it's shocking, but the most surprising and scandalous and shocking thing. It's really the second truth I want us to see this morning, and it's that, or it's this afternoon, I guess, right? It's three-something. That Jesus died. He still went to the cross. He died and resurrected for the people, for those who fall asleep and fall away. Jesus died and was resurrected for... Those who fall asleep and those who fall away. I want you to think about that for a minute. Let that sink in. You know, I was feeling condemned by my sin this past week. I was aware, you know, um, we had an argument with my wife and yes, that happens once in a while. It's never her fault though, it's mine. Um, And um, at times you can feel condemned. Like I'm, I'm the pastor. I'm supposed to know better. I'm supposed to act better. I'm supposed to be a better example for my kids. I'm supposed to be able to keep myself from sinning and I was condemned and, and that was the moment where this passage hit home to me and I realized that how amazing it is that Jesus died and was resurrected for those who fall asleep in their walk and those who fall away put yourself though in the, in the sandals really of the disciples Jesus knew ahead of time that his disciples would fall away and he even told them that they would he told them he was about to be crucified. He told them that one of, them, one of their own was going to betray him. He, he tearfully poured out his soul and he says, could you stay awake with me? I feel like I'm about to die. Could you stay awake just an hour, please? And they still fall asleep. Jesus knew that Peter would deny him, warned them that he would. I wonder how the disciples felt after those things. I want to encourage you to stop and think just for a moment, the perspective of Jesus as well. Have you ever been betrayed? Anybody ever been betrayed? You ever been betrayed by somebody you know closely? You know, I have. I think in this life you will find that people will let you down. You will be at some point probably betrayed. Maybe betrayed by somebody close to you, and it's very painful. You ever been abandoned by a friend? You ever been abandoned by all your friends? Think about it from the perspective of Jesus. Not only was he abandoned, he pours his soul out and tells them how awful he's feeling. He feels like he's going to die. He's about to die, literally. Really, he's told them he's about to die. They're all going to fall away. And he is in anguish. And they all just kind of fall asleep. And then they all fall away. And then his best friend denies him. You ever been denied by your best friend? You ever had a friend deny they even know you? Turned your back on you when you needed the support the most? Let me ask you this. If you knew in advance what your friends would do, that your friends would all not be there when you needed them, would you choose them as friends? If you knew that all your friends would fall away from you, if you knew that your best friends would deny they even knew you, would you cho- choose them as your friend? Would you pursue them? Would you say, hey, I want you to follow me, knowing that they would not be faithful? Would you still feel like loving a friend who abandoned you, who couldn't even pray with you? Would, you? would you love those friends who fell away and denied you? Jesus looks up at Peter. He knew what he had done in that moment. He knew ahead of time what they would do. He knew afterwards what they had done. And yet really the, the shocking thing is that Jesus still went to the cross. But you know, he didn't have to in the sense of he had authority over himself. John 10, verse 11, Jesus ahead of time was saying to them, to his disciples, preparing them for this very moment so that they wouldn't be confused, that he didn't lay down his life uh, uh, because someone made him. He told them in John 10, 11, he tells us too, he says, I'm the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then in verse 17 and 18, for this reason the Father loves me. Why? It says, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. Why did he tell them that ahead of time? He wanted them to know that in their darkest moment, when they realized how much they had failed, that they would realize that he didn't just continue to go to the cross because he had to because someone was forcing him. He wanted them to know that he was still laying down his life for them. That's the shocking. He he willingly and mercifully didn't abandon and doesn't abandon his sheep and his disciples. He lays down his life in his own accord. And then then just right after this, a few hours later, Jesus is in front of Pontius Pilate and he's giving um, the silent treatment to Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate's getting a little frustrated with him. He says, don't you know I have authority? So look in John 19 verse 10. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus sets him straight. Now Jesus speaks up. Verse 11 says, Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. You see, Jesus, even as a man, he had authority to take up his own life. He had authority to lay down his life. And in the midst of the failure of his disciples, his dearest followers, in the midst of his disciples falling asleep and falling away, in the midst of being betrayed by one of his own, in the midst of his best friend, arguably denying he even knew him, Jesus intentionally, mercifully went to the cross and laid down his life. And then he said the reason he laid down his life was so that we might be forgiven. So that he might make us new. Even on the cross, think about this, Jesus is hanging on the cross and the very soldiers who crucify him, they're splitting up his garments ignorantly and he he looks to them and then he looks up to the father and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. He laid down his life, not just for his disciples, but for those who crucified him willingly, knowing what they would do. He laid down his life because his disciples and all of us and people who unknowingly crucified him need to be rescued from ourselves. We need to be rescued from our own failures. We need to be rescued from the fact that we can't keep ourselves. We need to be rescued from our ignorant self-sufficiency. We need to be rescued from our pride. And we need to be brought to the point where we see that I have no hope in myself, but I have great hope in a great Savior. That's why he continued to go to the cross. We, we can't keep ourselves from falling asleep, Church. Maybe you're convicted that you've been complacent. Okay, you can't keep yourself from falling asleep. But you can see the great mercy of the Savior who died for all those who fall asleep and fall away. Jesus went to the cross and he was resurrected. Why? So that we might see his self-sacrificing love that didn't depend on the performance of those who follow him. So we might experience his mercy per- personally. We might see his grace and be transformed. You see, the third major truth I think we need to see this morning as we, uh, this afternoon, I keep doing this morning thing. Uh, this afternoon as we start the new year is that it is experiencing this merciful love and grace of Jesus. What, what is that, the gospel really? Experiencing the gospel, experiencing this merciful love and grace of Jesus. It, that's what transforms and dis- sustains his disciples to not fall away. Do you you want to have fresh hope for the new year? We need to experience his mercy anew and appropriate to ourselves anew. We need to see that we were just like the disciples. We've fallen away. We've fallen asleep. We are not able to keep ourselves. But Jesus still, he saw us and he knew us and he chose us. And he still went to the cross for us to extend his mercy to us. And that is the motivation that we have of saying, Jesus, I want to live for you now. If you've ever had a friend abandon you it's challenging it's challenging it can make you not want to see them again i've had this happen a lot before unfortunately as a as a pastor you, you get to know a lot of people really well and you realize that that you really will be disappointed in life if somebody's betrayed you maybe they've gossiped about you and slandered you maybe they've spread untrue lies about you, you're at least tempted to be mad at them. I confess, I've at least been tempted to be mad at times. Even if you recognize temptation and you're not mad at them, it can make you want to avoid them. Or at least it makes it awkward when you do see them. You ever had that? You ever had somebody you, you had a falling out with and then you, you try to forgive them in your heart and then you bump into them at the grocery store and you're like, oh, oh, maybe they won't see me. Then they, they see you and you're like, oh, Hi! And you try to act like nothing was wrong, but you're thinking, oh my gosh, just let me get out of here. I've got to make an excuse for I don't have to talk in a conversation. Let me get out of here. Maybe that's just me. You know, it can make you at least not want to be around people who've betrayed you, who've denied you, who've fallen away from you, who've been unkind, mistreated you. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus didn't avoid those who hurt him. I want you to think about that for a moment. What happened? Where was the very first time, aside from the women at the tomb, and, and possibly Peter there as well, um, Aside from that, think about the very first time Jesus encounters his disciples. Where are they? You know, where, where are the disciples at? Anybody know? It's not a quiz. They're locked away. They're locked up. Luke, Luke 24, 33 tells us where the disciples are after the resurrection. He tells us what their response is and how these great men of faith are responding to Jesus and his crucifixion. And it says in Luke 24, 33, it says, And they found the eleven, speaking of the people who had, were on the road to Emmaus, they came back. It says, They found the eleven who were with them and gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon, then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. And what do you think he said? He doesn't say, how could you, die? How could you deny me? How could you fall away from me? How could you fall asleep? How come you didn't stick with me? The very first thing he says to them, he says, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you peace to you the disciples were huddled together and we know that from from john 20 that tells us that they were in fear huddled together in this locked room they were afraid of the pharisees and the sadducees they were afraid for their own lives still they still weren't trusting and what does jesus do he doesn't avoid his disciples he doesn't avoid the awkwardness that they must have felt He doesn't avoid them he doesn't play dumb that they denied him they fell away from him they fell asleep they were fickle he didn't avoid his disciples he went right to where they were he didn't say enough with you you knew i was going to die you knew i needed you and yet you all failed you all abandoned me shame on you I'm going to make new friends. I'm going to call somebody else. I'm going, to, I'm going to go to somebody else. Jesus didn't say, you know what, fine. If you guys can't stick with me, then I'm just going to go to some other friends. I'll pick somebody else. I'll get new friends. He goes right to them. He mercifully goes right to them. And he says, peace to you. He's full of mercy and grace. He doesn't hold their or our sins and failings against them. And He comes to us and he, he seeks us out. He didn't avoid the people who heard Him. He went right to them. He died for them. He was resurrected for them. And He went to give them the good news of peace with Him. He appeared to doubting fearful disciples and He proclaimed peace to them. And let me tell you, this past week I really needed to hear those words myself and hear that Jesus didn't condemn. He came to condemn sin in His own flesh, but He didn't come to, to bring me condemnation. He came to Set me free from my sin. He came to forgive me. He came to pour out his mercy on me. And you know what the effect of that is? As you meditate on that, the effect was on my own heart, it made me not want to be complacent with my sin anymore. May made me not want to live complacent lives. I li- oh, only have one life. Live a complacent life. <laughs> it made me want to live for Jesus as I realized, oh Jesus, you are so merciful. Thank you that you don't cast me out, that you don't leave me alone, that you don't abandon me, that you come to me. Even when I'm doubting and fearful, you're patient and merciful. He's so patient and merciful. Look at Luke 24, 37. It says, but they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a Spirit. They still were scared. Jesus appears behind locked doors and says, peace to you. And they still couldn't believe it. And, they, and he says to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Boy, I think those words are for me often. See my hands and my feet, that it's I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, you have anything to eat? And he was, he was merciful. He, he showed them he was relatable. He was, he was real. He met them in their need in a very real way. And he ate together and said, See, I'm real. I'm not I'm not a spirit. And then he explains to them why he died and why he was resurrected in, in verse 44. And he says to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day rise from the dead and repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Did you catch that? Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed In his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city till you're clothed with power from on high. What was he doing? He was he was lovingly and mercifully and graciously explaining to his disciples that he, he came and he died and he was resurrected so that they might be forgiven, that they might repent. And that they might experience his forgiveness and then be witnesses of that. And the effects were dramatic. The effects were dramatic on his disciples. You know what happened as a result of the mercy and grace of Jesus on the disciples? The disciples were transformed. Transformed. The disciples were absolutely transformed. If you really behold the mercy of Jesus to you, if you really get the fact that he comes to you despite your failing, despite your faithlessness, and he comes to you in your weakness when you've fallen asleep, when you've fallen away, and he extends mercy and grace to you, if you understand that mercy, it will transform you. That's the motivation to no longer be complacent is seeing and beholding the mercy and grace and forgiveness of God and saying, Jesus, thank you for your mercy. I want to live for you now. Let that be the, the motivation as you think about the coming year, but not in self-reliance, in reliance on his grace and his mercy and his goodness. It's funny, disciples transform, you know, but later on, just a little while after this, Peter goes back to fishing. I'm not exactly sure why he does that. Him and about six other disciples, they all go back to fishing and they're, they're there. Maybe he felt a little unworthy. Maybe he didn't quite feel like he deserved to be an apostle. I'm not sure. But we know that a little while later in John 21, Jesus goes to him and he implicitly, explicitly restores Peter. Peter had three times denied Jesus. And so in John 21 tells us that Jesus back and forth says, Peter, do you love me? And he says, yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? A third time. And then John 20, 20, verse 17 says, Peter was grieved because he said to them the third time, do you love me? And he said to them, Lord. Catch this. He actually acknowledges now that he knows everything. Whereas before he's basically told Jesus, Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. Now he says, Lord, you do know everything. You know I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And then after that, he said to him, just a verse later, follow me. Jesus knew he had been unfaithful. He knew he had denied him three times. And yet he made sure that Peter got the fact that Jesus was still calling him to follow him. Jesus comes to all who are doubting and fearful. And he says, look to me and and don't fear anymore. See my hands and feet. He restored Peter and he seeks us out to restore us as well. And then he calls us to get up and follow him once more. That's mercy. It's not not the duty of following Jesus. This is the delight, the joy of Jesus saying, Your failures don't disqualify you from following me. Your falling asleep doesn't disqualify you from being my follower. You're qualified because of my mercy. You're qualified because of my grace. You're qualified because of me. Now get up. Don't be condemned anymore. Now follow me. And we know that that Peter was transformed by the mercy of Jesus too because later on in the book of Acts, and by the way, Luke, the same one who wrote the gospel we read earlier, he wrote the book of Acts. And and later on in the book of Acts, in in Acts 4 and 5, you can read after how even he and John, they were beaten and they were told that they were going to be killed or thrown in jail if they continued to preach the name of Jesus. They boldly preached the name of Jesus. Why? Because they were transformed by the mercy and grace of Jesus personally. In fact, in, in Acts five twenty six, it says the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You weren't hanging back there. You weren't at a distance. You weren't falling away. What in the world's going on? It says that you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But in 29, listen to this transformation that happened to Peter and the apostles. Verse 29, But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him as the right hand, as leader and savior to give. Here's what transformed them. Listen, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. So is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Peter and the apostles, they weren't afraid. Why? Because they understood that Jesus came to give them new life. He came to forgive them. He came to bring repentance and forgiveness. And they had no more fear of punishment. What could man do to them now? And because they had trusted in him, Jesus gave the gift of the Holy Spirit to them as well. And the disciples have been changed by the mercy and loving kindness of God. How about you? Have you been changed by the mercy and the loving kindness of Jesus? Do you understand that He came to you when you, knowing you would fall asleep, knowing you would fall away, knowing you might even deny Him? And yet He intentionally died for you anyway, and me. That's encouraging to me. Disciples were transformed. By the mercy and grace of Jesus. I think that's where we need to start. That's where we need to be stirring ourselves up out of complacency and refocusing ourselves and saying, let's fall in love with Jesus again for the first time all over again. Let's see his mercy. Let's see his grace. Let's let's not be okay being complacent. Let's really repent and maybe repent with tears. But let's then not trust in our own ability. Let's say, Oh, Jesus, because you're merciful, because you're gracious, because you've forgiven us, how can we not testify for you? How can we not live for you and be willing to give our own lives for you? Because later, actually, all the disciples eventually did. Maybe not John because he was in prison on Patmos. But. You know, Peter and John, they preached openly. Yes, they're weak. Yeah, even later on, sometimes they gave in to the fear of man. We see that Peter did later on. But they were sustained by the love of Christ for them personally. What are you sustained by? What do you see? Do you behold his mercy and his grace and his love for you? Or are you so... Discouraged because you failed? Or are you proud thinking you won't fail? You know, if we lose sight of this merciful love and grace of Jesus, you're going to fall away. If, if, you, if you're not captivated by the mercy, mercy of Jesus, you're going to be tempted to give up. What, what's my wish for you, for all of us this new year? It's that we might be so captivated by the merciful love and grace of Jesus that we would be transformed. To live for him. You know, maybe you've fallen asleep. I mean, literally today. Well, maybe that's true, but maybe you've fallen asleep in your walk. Maybe you've become complacent. Maybe you realize that you've been letting things slip and you've been okay with areas of your life that it's not okay to be alright with. You've been complacent and sin, you've been complacent and just kind of being self-centered, self-focused. You know, especially as we move into this, this new building, it's easy as a church to become less mission-focused and more comfortable but there's something really dangerous about being comfortable it's like being wrapped up in the coils of a giant snake it's you can feel comfortable and warm but it can lead to death shake off shake off complacency wake up maybe you've fallen away maybe you've denied Jesus Jesus knew that you would but he comes in a weakness and he speaks peace to us He wants us to receive mercy and be astounded by his mercy and love. And he says to all sinners, me and you and those you know, be transformed by his grace. It was the grace and mercy and love of Jesus that motivated the disciples not to live for themselves anymore. And for us, let's see the mercy and grace of Jesus and go and live for him. Let his mercy transform you so that you're no longer self-centered, so that you're living to lay down your life because he's laid down his life for you. So if you're thinking about New Year's resolutions, whatever, feel free to. But don't do it trusting in your own strength. Do it relying in Jesus, amazed by his mercy. And let the one thing that inspires you be the love and kindness of Christ, your first love with Jesus. And let his mercy refresh you. Let his mercy inspire you to go and be witnesses. Amen? Well, let's pray. And as we pray, i ask the band to go ahead and come up. Jesus, thank you that you knew that we would fall asleep. You knew that we would fall away. Yet, Jesus, you don't abandon us. You come to us and you speak peace to us. God, I I pray, though, for for conviction, if any of us have been self-sufficient, that we would throw off that self-sufficiency and pride. God, I pray if we've, we've grown complacent and we are not amazed by your mercy, Lord, I pray we'd repent and I pray, Lord, that we would be enamored and amazed by your mercy and grace to us. And I pray, God, that you would give us fresh joy fresh joy in knowing you, fresh joy in receiving and breathing in your mercy. And then God, I pray that you would give us a hope in you, despite our failures, that you are faithful, even when we are faithless. You do not deny yourself. pray all these things in your name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.